Amen. Thank you, Josh, for uh, leading us in song. At this time, I'd like to dismiss our kids to uh, kids ministry. Well, it does sound like a lightsaber, but <laughs> I don't know. Okay, um, as the kids are dismissed, if, uh, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'd just like to go there uh, to guide us in our time of prayer. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a time for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, just uh, looking at verses 1 to 8. Solomon uh, wrote this, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, and a time to love and a time to hate and a time for war and a time for peace. Now just using this scripture here, I'd just like to go to the Lord in prayer and seeking him to know the times that we're in. If you just bow with me, Lord, we see here so clearly there is a time for everything under the sun. There's a time that new life is given you know, as, as some await the birth of their children, Lord. Others just given birth. Others, uh, maybe their days are numbered here on this earth, Lord. You give us times and seasons for all things. We praise you for the seasons that you, you give to us. We praise you for the seasons in our church, uh, the season that we're here in the dome and be able to praise you on Saturday evenings. I praise you for how you've blessed us in this time, Lord. I, uh, I praise you for what you've done in the past year. We look forward to what you do in this a new season, a new year. Uh, Lord, we're, we're seeking you. We ask that you would build your church. You would strengthen us as believers, Lord. You would use us to make your name known in Red Deer, in Central Alberta, wherever you'd send us. Lord, we want to make your name known. I thank you for even the season of weather we find outside the season of spring, and we know, uh, though it, it can fluctuate uh, here in central Alberta, Lord, it's, it's here because you have ordained it. After winter comes spring and then summer, Lord. And as we see uh, things growing and uh, flowers in the future, maybe flowers in our house, uh, we, we praise you for that, Lord, that there's a season in which things start to grow. And as we celebrated Easter, and the new life we have in Christ, I just praise you for the new life that we have, uh, able to walk in by your spirit, Lord. Continue to give us grace, whatever season we find ourselves in, whether it's a season of something ending or a season of something beginning in each one of our lives, whether someone's going through a time of celebration, may they gather with people and celebrate, give you thanks and praise. Anyone here who's going through a challenging time, carrying many, many burdens, Lord, I pray they'd be able to leave those at your feet, and find the grace and help uh, from you that they need. Oh, Lord, so we seek you at the changing seasons. We praise you that you do not change. There's a, there's a time for everything under the sun. There's so many different seasons, Lord, but I praise you that you are unchanging, that you are faithful, you are a rock, and we, we stand upon you, Lord. Now, as we turn our attention to the book of Genesis, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. I pray you would use 
I study in preparation and give us open ears and open hearts. Lord, may your word go out, may it not return void. May you do the work in us uh, by your spirit. And again, continue to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In, in your Bibles now, if you want to turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. And it's like life's so easy on us if you think if we're always turning to Genesis. Uh, like it's just really easy to find <laughs> just in the first book of there in the Bible. Um, so we're in Genesis chapter 4. I'll be reading there, from there in just a moment. We've been going through the book of Genesis seeking to build a biblical worldview. Uh, that is our desire. That's what we, we're seeking to do. We looked at Genesis chapter 1. We saw God made all things in six days and he made them good. He made them very good. And we, we praise God for that. And we looked at Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is actually going back into part of the sixth day of creation. And we saw God created a marriage and he blessed it between man, one man and one woman. And we, we, we praise him for that. And we're, uh, then we saw though Genesis chapter 3. As, as sin entered into the world. And the thing that God made so very good, uh, we saw Adam and Eve make that choice to take a fruit they weren't supposed to and turn from God, and sin enter into the world. And, and that therein they got kicked out of the garden. And then before Easter, we looked at Genesis chapter 4, the start, where we saw how bad is sin, and we saw the effect that it had on the first two brothers. You know, I don't know if you know the story, if you grew up in the church, uh, Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, and then because of sin's effect in Cain's life, he turns and he kills his brother. And so we've been looking at all this, seeking to, Lord, by your word, help us to have a biblical worldview, world help us to see things more clearly through your scriptures. And now, this evening, we're going to continue on in chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at two different kind of family trees, if you will, two different lines, descendants. I don't know, do you know your family tree at all? Is that, is that something that you're cur curious about? I know there, nowadays you can go from like Ancestry.ca or different companies and you can get so much more information about who came before you. But there's this famous study I just want to bring before your attention this evening about two different people and their family lines. And one, one person, his name was Jonathan Edwards. Have you heard his name? He's a famous uh, preacher during like the late 1700s before America was formed. And he, he was famous for preaching a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he preached during the time called the Great Awakening where like thousands upon thousands came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and people would just come to a meeting and they'd be convicted of their sin. And, and America was like vastly changed by that. So that's his background. And I was, we're, there's a study done at looking like what happened with Jonathan Edwards and all his descendants after him. And they looked, compared it to another guy. He's a little different. His name was Max Jukes. And it was like later on in time, they, they noticed in the, in the New York prison system, this Max Jukes, they like started tracing 45 different or 42 different uh, men in the prison system, all had their, their descendants from Max Jukes. So they compared these two people. And the reason I want to show you, because there's such a stark contrast between these two family lines, and that's what we're going to see in the text tonight. So first, Max Jukes, this is his descendants. They, they lived, him and Jonathan Edwards lived about the same time. So in his descendants, it included seven murderers, 
60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 very poor people, 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. And of the 12,000 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. So that's Max Juke's family line. Then there's Jonathan Edwards. His legacy includes one U.S. president, sorry, U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, 33, sorry, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. So vastly different, these two people and their family lines. The reason I'm bringing that before your attention is we're going to see that in the text this evening. And I, I just, by clarifying that, I hope you see how, how strictly, how different it is, like the stark contrast we're going to look at. So we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 4. If you want to stand with me, though we're looking at the second half, I'm going to read the whole chapter for the context uh, we have this evening. So Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad fathered Mahujalah, and Mahujalah fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Out aboard Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, to, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. May God bless his word to our hearts this evening. You can have a seat. So I hope you can, you can see this stark contrast between the names. It actually carries on to Genesis chapter 5 where we see more fully Seth's line uh, compared to Cain's line. Uh, one commentator, Sarfati, pointed out in Genesis, uh, there's always kind of the focus is on the messianic line throughout. Like who is Jesus going to come from? Who is the, the child of promise? But first it always deals with kind of the other line. And so we see that. Here's Cain's line. And then here's the line of Seth, who, who Jesus will come from. And then in Genesis chapter 2, there's kind of the list of all these nations. And then after that, Abraham and his family. And then Genesis chapter 5, there's Ishmael, kind of dealt with first off. And then it's Isaac and all of his family. So there's a pattern that we see here in Genesis chapter 4. Again, we see here a line of Cain, and it's in sharp contrast to the line of Seth. I want us to see in, in verses 17 to 24, the line of Cain and, and cultural development. Cain's, in Cain's line, the focus is on human achievement. It's on human achievement. If you, I don't know if you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you, some people you think like you can't do that, but it's okay if you do. <laughs> but if, if, you were, if you read Genesis chapter four and you kept underlining every time you saw the name Lord or God, and you just kept underlining it, you notice at the start of Genesis chapter four with the Cain and Abel story, the Lord is greatly involved. And he's talking with Cain. But then you'd notice at verses 17 to 24, if you underline in red, all of a sudden you'd see no red. And God is not seemingly not present in Cain's line. And then you'll notice again, he'll pick back up again when we start talking about Seth. So with Cain's line, you see human achievement and no mention of God. If you look at me with, at verse 17, or maybe just note first in verse 16, so Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Settled in the land, Nod means wandering. He, so he settled in the land of wandering. He was to be a wanderer, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, had relations with her, verse 17, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so maybe you're asking, like, who did Cain have a, a wife with? Well, Genesis 5, verse 4 it mentions uh, of Adam, he had other sons and daughters. So for sure, one of Adam and Eve's uh, other sons and daughters, that would have been where his wife would have come from. But if you'll notice, like, uh, Cain was supposed to be a wanderer. And so how, why did he all of a sudden build this city? He kind of built it in rebellion against God. God told him, hey, you're going to be a wanderer. So he's like kind of in rebellion. Hey, no, I'm actually going to build this city. I'm going to do this thing right here. But he didn't, seemingly the Hebrew kind of lends to he started it. 
He didn't complete it because he's meant to wander and that's what he's going to do. So he started building the first city that we have here in Scripture and then names his son Enoch. Enoch means dedication and then kind of names the son after, or the city after his son. But if you'll see, just the fact that he built a city, it was in rebellion against the, against the Lord. God told him, hey, you're going to be a wanderer. He's like, okay, I'm going to build a city. And he, but he didn't finish it. He carried on and his son finished it. Uh, one commentator, Henry Morris, says this <clears throat> about, about a city being built so quickly after Adam and Eve. He says this, It's interesting that one of the identifying marks which evolutionary anthropologists used to denote the emergence of a Stone Age culture into a civilized society is the development of urbanization. As in they're like, and they say usually that takes like a mi millions of years or hundreds, thousands of years that you're going to see, like they go from very primitive to slowly work their way towards building a city. But uh, Henry Morris point, points out that actually it was in the first generation after Adam, not long million year development here. So that's, that's something to note. From the garden uh, to Cain, the wanderer, to a city. So there, there's this building of culture. If you look at verse 18, you have five generations co covered very quickly. And for, for those who are going to have children in the future, a, a fine list of names uh, to work from as well. <laughs> to Enoch was born Irad. And I guess the term Irad, I'm getting help from uh, commentator Serfati here. Irad means man of the city. So maybe he was in Enoch or in that city. And then there was Mahujala. And this is interesting. Mahujala could, could mean El makes me live, as in God. God makes me live. And Methuselah means man of Al, man of God. There's even God's grace in this ungodly line that's portrayed here. And don't get them mixed up with people in, in Seth's line in chapter 5. They have the same name, but those are different people. This is a different line. And then there's the last name there, though, and Lamech. Methuselah fathered Lamech, and Lamech means warrior or conqueror. And kind of after that, they just quickly five generations because you want to get to Lamech, talk about his descendants and talk about what he has done. Well, look at Lamech, the great and mighty Lamech. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. So he took two wives. Lamech is the seventh from Adam on Cain's line. And then Enoch is the seventh from Adam on Seth's line. They're distinctly different. So what do you have with Lamech? You have uh, bigamy. God's plan for marriage, we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse, verse 24, was monogamy, right? Because what did God say? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his, his wife. Not hold fast to his wives, hold fast to one wife. One man, one wife. That's what God has called marriage to be. But Lamech, in rebellion against God, he had two wives. I guess the, the names of his wives, Ada meant ornament, Zillah meant shade or tinkling. It could have been like lust of the eyes that he took these two women to be his wives. But again, God ordained marriage between one man, one woman, but the Bible records what happens. We, all, we also know Abraham, we, we know he had... Sarah is his wife, and then Hagar as well. We know Jacob had two wives, two concubines. The list could go on and on. The Bible records what happens, but we know God's intention is marriage between one man 
and one woman. As we continue to go on with Lamech's descendants, we're going to continue to see uh, culture being developed. We'll see if the Lord takes my voice, then we'll trust, <laughs> we'll trust what he has. So if we continue on to verse 20, we see here the descendants of Lamech. To Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so he was a nomadic herdsman. Jabal, his name means producer. So often their name kind of means what they do. And uh, so he, not like Abel, Abel stayed in one place and he was uh, carrying after more like sheep and goats. Jabal was moving around and he kept livestock, cattle, camels, donkeys. But still again, you have this domestication of animals. Uh, that usually, they say it takes like thousands of years as people are like so primitive, they wouldn't do that. And then maybe that's the next step, they start to take that. We already have a city. Now we already have people taking care of animals. Uh, Jabal. Next we have uh, his brother uh, 21, in verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And he was the first musician. Jubal, I guess the sound of his name sounds familiar to the word, uh, similar that uh, the word for the ram's horn blown at the year of Jubilee, like the sound that it would make. So the first musician, Gordon Wenham, says this, the lyre was a stringed instrument played with the hand and was used for both sacred and secular music. The pipe is mentioned more rarely, usually in parable with lyres. L-Y-R-E-S, lyres. Okay, not, not, the, not the other kind. But uh, it seems to have been a reed. So... The first musician, like in their brokenness, they were creating music. I don't know about you, I'm thankful for, for music, all the different ways that God has made to make a beautiful noise. And music, it can be used uh, for good and for bad, right? We've maybe all experienced that. Certain songs we've heard, we're like, okay, maybe that's not so good. Certain songs we sang tonight, you're like, okay, that's to the glory of the Lord. I remember this one time uh, down in Haiti, after every evening we'd go up on top of the roof, it was so nice, and you would reflect on what happened in the day, and it was during the Easter season. And up on this roof, uh, from over in this direction, the drums were beating. And the drums were beating uh, for voodoo, because they were worshiping the devil. And that's how music was being used over in that direction. And from over in this direction, we heard praise music. I think it was actually Chris Tomlin, the same, he's, we, the song we sang tonight, I just I recognize it off in the distance. They're, they're praising the Lord with music over here. They're praising the devil with music over here. And so here we have seemingly a, for the humans, the first originator, first musician, uh, Jubal. But again, God has blessed us with music, with different instruments. Uh, there's so many psalms I could go to. I just want to bring your attention to Psalm 150, verses 3 to 5, thinking of music used to praise God. Psalm 150, verse 3 says, Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Whatever musical instruments are available, can we use it to sing songs to God? But Jubal, he was the first musician. And so we have the first city, the first nomadic herdsman, the first musician. Again, culture is being developed. In verse 22, we have Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. 
He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. These are instruments, if you remember, part of the curse to the ground was it's going to produce thorns and thistles. And so now this, we have someone producing a technology to deal with this hard ground that they have to work with or however else his tools were used, right? That's a, kind of the beauty of technology. It helps us work within the brokenness of the world that we live in. I, I think we're all thankful for that, right? Like, we don't no longer, you know, if you have a bunch of dirty clothes, you don't take it outside to like a pool of water and work on that. You just throw it into the washing machine, right? And, and to the jar, like, praise the Lord for that. Like, I don't know about you guys, maybe no longer like wash dishes at home, put it into the dishwasher. I think as my kids get older, the dishwasher will stop working all of a sudden. and <laughs> They can experience that. But we're so thankful. I don't know if any farmers out there, it's like you don't just dig up the ground and plant a seed and dig up the ground and plant a seed, but you drive a seeder and you can just cover vast amounts of land. So we're thankful for technology. But we see this guy, Tubal Cain, and he was making instruments of bronze and iron. Again, you just see culture being developed. Sarfati points this out that all these brothers produce useful technology that would make life easier and alleviate effects of the curse. This is good in itself and illustrates God's grace even in the line of the murderer Cain. Again, Henry Morris just wants us to, to note again that all the elements of modern evangelical or evolutionary archaeologists and anthropologists identifies the attributes of the emergence of evolving man from Stone Age into true civilization are here in a few generations. Where they say it took thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of years for like agriculture to animal domestication to dealing with the metals to a city being built and you just have generation after generation after generation this happening. So flies in, this, in the face of evolutionary science. And just showing that the descendants of Adam and, and Eve did not take hundreds and thousands of years to do this, but very quickly did they work the ground and continue to uh, grow culture. But now the focus I want to bring your attention to, verse 33 and, or sorry, 23 and 24, is Lamech. And I want you to see here, Lamech is a bad man. Look at this. Lamech said to his wives... Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wise of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, he's a bad man. This is the first record we have of poetry in the Bible. And what is it about? It's about boasting about how bad he is. His showmanship. Oh, you know Cain? I'm way better than Cain. That's what this is about. Again, the Hebrew poetry there, he's just repeating the same thing in different words. So as he says, hear my voice, you wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. He says the same thing a little differently. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He did, there was not two guys, there's one person that he's talking about. But think about how boastful he is. Who is he saying this to? He's saying this to his two wives. <laughs> so he's like, oh, I'm so bad, but he's like probably saying it in a hushed tone. Not out so everyone can hear, but saying it to his two wives, like, look at me, I'm so dangerous, but I'm only going to tell to you two how bad I am. 
But so he's bragging, and look what he's bragging about. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Who, who gave to Cain the fact that he would get revenge seven times? That was God. God said, I'm going to put a mark on you. Anyone who kills you, they're going to get seven times the vengeance. Well, think about how, how uh, ignorant it is that Lamech, like, oh, yeah, God, you seven times vengeance? 77 times for Lamech. Like he's like, I can do way better than God. That's what we see in Cain's line and with Lamech highlighted for us. We see, we see this like almost competition for wickedness. In fact, that's what it would say before the flood. Genesis 6, 5, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we, it just continues to get worse from there. Yeah, Lamech, this, this line of like, hey, I'm way worse than Cain than after Lamech. It just keeps getting worse and worse. There's people trying to outdo one another in wickedness. Writer Derek Kinder says this, Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of te technical prowess and more moral failure is that of humanity. The family of Lamech could handle its environment but not itself. When writer William Culbertson says this, and whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed miserably. And that's what we see here. We see them developing, we see them moving technology ahead, all apart from God. We can do this ourselves. And then Lamech is like, hey, here's, here's the fruit of all this. Here, here's our prized person, Lamech in his poetry. Alan Ross again says this, the narrative thus describes the first affluent society, self-indulgent and self-gratifying, building cities and developing civilization, but doing so in defiance of God and his laws. Again, this is Cain's line, society without God. So now I, I hope you see how it's highlighted for us there in Scripture. Now we'll turn our attention to the last two verses, verse 25 and 26, the line of Seth. And I, instead of cultural development, I want to see spiritual development. So I think that is what is highlighted for us. So in the book of Genesis, there's three births that are highlighted for us. There's a, first is Cain. Adam knew Eve, his wife, she conceived and bore Cain. And we know that that was wickedness. That did not turn out well. Killed his brother Abel. But then the next birth that's highlighted, it's Cain's. Uh, Cain knew his wife in verse 17. She conceived and bore Enoch. So we have these other descendants coming, but not talking about their births. But now at the end of the chapter, this is the third time that it's mentioned, a man knowing his wife. And it's distinctly different than the other two. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She's still mourning the loss of her son. But think about this. If you're with us, one of the curses that was given to the snake in Genesis chapter 3, the snake that deceived Adam and Eve, God said to this, to the snake in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, or between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's this promise, someone coming from Eve is gonna bruise the, bruise the head of the snake. And so Eve with Cain was like, is this the guy? Cain was not the guy. And now even the kind of the hope returns that she has Abel. Look what she says. And you call his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring or another seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. His name was Seth, which meant appointed. And who, who did that? Well, God appointed Eve to have another son. You'll just notice now God is brought in. Again, God's brought into the story and things are going to be markedly different than Cain's line and Seth's line. Because if we look at verse, again, verse 26. So remember, from verses 17 to 24, God is not mentioned, God's not seen. Look at what we've done. Look at us. Look at our accomplishments. And then also we turn to Adam and Eve, and they have Seth, because God appointed a son. In verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I love it. Enosh, his name means frail man. <laughs> his name means frail man. Compare that with, we got Lamech. He's, he's a conqueror, right? He's a warrior. He got Enosh, Seth's son. He's a frail man. But then what does it say right after that? People began to call on the name of the Lord. Surely in Seth's line, surely they had culture. Surely they had maybe were building things. Surely they're domesticating animals. Maybe working with metals. Maybe taking what the musician had and working with it. But it says none of that. Instead, it, it just mentions what's happening spiritually. Think about this. Alan Ross says this. Seth, the replacement of Abel, fathered Enosh, and then people began to worship the Lord. As great as all the inventions of civilization were, this step was greater by far. People began to call on the name of the Lord. They're not listing their accomplishments. They're talking about their worship. Gordon Wineham says this, it seems to be an umbrella phrase for worship, most obviously prayer and sacrifice. Again, if you, th you think of Cain when he had his son, Enoch, he called his city after his son, right? And now you have Seth having his son Enosh, and it just says, they didn't call a city after him, but at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So again, there's this great contrast between the lines. People began to call on the name of the Lord. How did they do it? Well, if we would just look in, continue on in Genesis, Genesis 12, 8. It says of Abraham, the second part of verse 8, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis 13, 4, he went to the same place, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord at the altar. His son Isaac, Genesis 26, 25, It says this about Isaac. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And how did Isaac know to build an altar and call on the name of the Lord? Well, he learned it from his dad. Right? Family worship being passed on to the sons. 
And so what, what their worship consisted of, it seemed like it would be an altar, maybe sometimes an animal sacrifice, like Abel brought his, his, the best of the flock and the, the fat portion, so maybe an animal killed and presented to the Lord. And for sure it would be like prayer and worship offered up to God. Quite simply, they began to seek God to turn their attention towards Him, their thoughts, their desires, they prayed. Look at that culture being developed, people making a name for themselves, building cities, making music, writing poems. Look what I've done. In Cessline, people began to call on the name of the Lord. I hope you can see those, those two family lines contrasted together. Next week we're going to look more fully because Genesis chapter 5 takes Cessline and draws it out more fully, but then just comparing that to Cain's. Like, forget about God, look what we can do. And then we see those people who will seek the Lord. Again, that's why I brought your attention to Jonathan Edwards, his life and that, the life of that other man. Because it's just so different. And that's what's happening here in Scripture. I hope you can see it. But the question is, now I want to turn our attention, what about us? As we're thinking about in their time, as they began to call upon the name of the Lord, I want to think about us, about us calling upon the name of the Lord and continue to kind of keep in the background, thinking about what is our family line? We're our family descendants. What about us? When did you begin to call on the name of the Lord? Maybe you haven't yet. How are you to call upon the name of the Lord in our time? Well, I hope you don't think you're supposed to go build an altar and take an unsuspecting animal. <laughs> Like, we, we're, we're not to do that, right? We just celebrated Easter where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was killed for our sins on the cross, for our shame, and He was buried, and He rose again on the third day, right? So that's, that's where we're at. When we're talking about calling upon the name of the Lord, we're talking about calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. And to put it in a clear perspective, I'll just draw your attention to Romans chapter 10. Looking at verses 9 to 11. Apostle Paul says this about calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord, as it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And what that, what that means is Jesus is king. Because it was contrasting another saying that they had in, in Paul's time, in, in the time of Romans, that, that they would say, like, Caesar is king. And you would have to bow down, you'd have to give some sort of sacrifice and just show your allegiance to Caesar. But the Christians, they got it. They're like, no, if you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, it's Jesus is king over everything. Over my, my wallet in my back pocket, over the time I keep, over the money I have, over my heart while it beats, my breath while it's coming out of my mouth, everything. That's what it is to call upon the name of the Lord. Saying, I'm committing my life to you. Jesus, I, I believe that you died for my sins. Believe in my heart that you rose again from the grave. Look at that great promise, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Friends, if that is not you, I would just, I would just encourage you, get on your knees and cry out to God for his mercy. And he'll save you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, through trust in him. This is the, the beauty part. We start talking about like our, our family lines. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you become part of his family, a child of God, a son and daughter of the Most High. And I don't know about you, we all have, we all have a past. We all have things that we've done, but the beauty is it gets nailed to the cross. We remember it no more, and people are like, actually, no, now in my family lineage, I'm now one of God's children. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? I'm curious, if you're already a believer, when did you first believe? If you're a part of God's family, are you part of generations of God's people? Do you have a godly lineage? I was at a, a birthday party not too long ago and just noticed uh, the people that were in this family that had married into the family, they're, they're Christians. And then you think, and their, their kids were Christians or Christ followers, and they had babies, and, and, and maybe those babies are going to be raised in a godly home, they had a godly lineage. If that is, that's your story, praise God. If that's your story, do your children know that's your story? And if that's your story, I'd encourage you to take time over a meal sometime and just like let them know, hey, this is who we come from. This is our godly lineage. But I know that's, that's not everyone's story. Maybe for, for some of you, are, are you the first? And what I mean, are you the first? Are you the first to follow God within your family line? And if you are the first... Someone's got to start it. Praise God, it started with you. That you get to begin the family line of like, after me, I'm praying that my, my children after me will trust in Jesus Christ and my grandchildren will trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe if, if you're, you're newer to trusting in the Lord, maybe you're a couple and you're thinking, how do we raise our kids in a godly home? It wasn't modeled for us. What does that look like? I'd like to draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Just thinking, if, if you are starting that godly lineage, you want to train your children, it says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Here's kind of a pattern for passing on our faith to our children. But a lot of times if you're like, if you're newer to the faith, if you're starting that godly lineage in your house, you want to pass it on to your children. Maybe sometimes it can be like parents who homeschool experience. We haven't got there yet, but maybe your kids are doing like a harder math problem and you're like, you're learning it yourself. <laughs> and then you're teaching it to them. And that's maybe what it can be like if, if you're like, hey, as for me and my house, we didn't serve the Lord, but now we are. You're like studying and learning things about God just to then teach them to your children next. Like that's what it can look like. And then you can also obviously within the church learn from other people, learn from other families and, and, and glean from one another. 
just like encourage one another. Like, hey, how are you doing disciplining your children? How are you doing getting them to bed? There's great resources out there. Just one I'd recommend, a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It's great for raising your kids. I have to revisit it again myself. Just think about this. If, if, if you, when you called on the name of the Lord, like then what? Just think of someone for the first time, like, hey, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. And then you're like, and then you just stop? Well, now let me just tell you what it was like for me. I remember when I, I, I on my knees calling out like, hey, if you can forgive me, Lord, my life is yours. Do with it whatever you want. And then it's like, well, I, I guess I, I should read the Bible. As a, new, as a new believer, right, stumbling through the book of Proverbs, like this is amazing. The Word of God, have you read it? God speaks to us through it, through His Spirit. And it's like, oh man, like, we need to do that to call upon the name of the Lord. We need to be in His Word. I remember as a new believer, it's like, I guess I should pray. And, and just falling to my knees, I didn't know it. I'm like, I thought you had to be on your knees to pray. You can pray standing up, you can pray sitting down. We, we need to pray, right? To call upon the name of the Lord. We need to be men and women of prayer, men and women of the Word. Now I remember learning, it's like, okay, is that, is that all there is to call on the name of the Lord? Well, no. Then you need to gather with other believers, right? I'm like, okay, I guess I need to go to church. Right? We need to sit under the preaching of God's Word, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with, to one another. We need to nourish our, our soul. I remember, you know, taking communion for the first time. Like, what, what is this? This is the way we call upon the name of the Lord. We're remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We need to do that. We need to take in the bread, remembering his body broken for us, the, the cup, remembering his blood shed for us. I remember as a, as a new believer, okay, I'm learning how to call upon the name of the Lord and talking to this pastor, and he's like, have you been baptized? And I'm like, what do you, I don't even know. What is baptism? Oh, I found out about it. I'm like, okay, okay let's get baptized. I found out as, as, as a believer, someone who calls upon the name of the Lord, a follower of Jesus Christ, he has said, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So friends, if you're hearing this and you're like, I, I, I love Jesus, I haven't been baptized, like don't wait. Come talk to me and let's baptize you and continue to call upon the name of the Lord. I would just encourage you, make spiritual development, call it upon the name of the Lord, a priority in your life. Continue to do these things. There's much more we could say there. But ju just think about this. Someone who's, who says, yes, I call upon the name of the Lord, are there markers of them? Are there ways to recognize someone who calls upon the name of the Lord? I'd say there are. Just like you can recognize a Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan from afar. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, where, if you're in Saskatchewan, you can see the flags going up. You can see, like, the watermelon cut in half. Or if you're in Edmonton or Calgary, you can see the green. And then in the rest of the stadium, you know the Rough Rider fans are there. But is there a way, spiritually, well, outwardly, the kind of the things I talked about, we can recognize people who call upon the name of the Lord inwardly. We'd be like being full of love and changing our desires, having the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control, you know, starting to grow in us. A work of the Spirit.
And, and another area I just want to point out to you, another mark of someone who calls upon the name of the Lord is forgiveness. I just want to draw your attention uh, in finishing to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 23. Again, you, you, you'll see the connection here soon enough. I know I'm taking this jump from Genesis chapter 4. But thinking about all those who call upon the name of the Lord for ourselves, a mark of those who do is someone who forgives. We'll look at verse 21 in a second. This is following this section that we referred to about church discipline. If someone sins against you in verses 15 to 18, you bring it before them. You ask for forgiveness, they refuse to change. You bring someone else with you. If they refuse to change, then you bring the elders of the church to them. If they refuse to change, you bring them before the church and you treat them like an unbeliever. You preach the gospel to them. But following this statement from Jesus, I love it. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I just love it because you know he's like, he's like, I'm going to give him such a high number. It's going to blow his mind. And he says, as many as seven times? He's like, oh, like Jesus is going to be really impressed. I went such a high number. I love his response, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter, you're, you're missing it. And the reason I want to bring your, your attention to this, because where in Scripture do we see this? We see this in Lamech's boast. Cain had revenge seven times, Lamech 77 times. Christian, so that was to mark Lamech. He was a bad man. To mark his Christians, forgive seven times? No, 77 times. And it's not that we have this number and we're counting 78, done. Because Jesus tells a parable right after, right? I won't tell the whole thing. I love it. He talks about this guy. If you look at verse 24, he had, he owed, he owed this guy 10,000 talents. <laughs> a talent is, hold on, let me just read it to, to be sure. A talent is 20 years wages. So think whatever you make in a year times by 20,000, or sorry, 10,000. Like he, he owed him such an amount, there's no way that he could possibly have paid. So 10,000 times, I don't know, I'm gonna mess up the math. It was a lot, it was such a big amount, there's no possible way he could be repaid, right? And then he is, he's repaid, he's forgiven. And then in the story though, he goes and he finds someone who has a, owes him a little bit of money, and he wants to beat him, wants to throw him in jail. But friends, Jesus tells this parable because that's what we've been forgiven. We're that first amount. We're at such an, a huge amount that we owe God that there's no possible way we could pay for it. But then Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. And so if you're one who's like, I am calling upon the name of the Lord, we need to be marked by forgiveness because we've been forgiven. Such a great amount. We have no choices, believers. That's something that should mark us is forgiveness. And I don't know about you. I know in this past season, I need to forgive the government. No, I, I think what, they're, what they've done is wrong. But I, need to, I can't hold bitterness against them. Because I, I, I read in here, not seven times, 77 times. That should mark us as a believer as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what comes to mind for you. For me, maybe there's someone, you have someone in your family, 
maybe a coworker, a friend, a spouse. If there's anyone that you have unforgiveness against, if you're a Christian, you're saying, yes, I call upon the name of the Lord, you need to forgive that person. You need to confess that to them. Through the Spirit, it's not easy. We need to keep praying for that. We're like, oh God, I know I'm angry at this person. I know I have something against me to pray, Lord, help me to forgive them. Because that's something as Christians that should mark us. It should mark us. So friends, I hope you saw in Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain, Cain's descendants, what they did without God, but it ends with hope. Even though sin entered in, in Genesis 3, the answer still lay in seeking God. You see the contrast, the line of Cain, cultural development without God. The line of Seth, spiritual development, calling on the name of the Lord. Friends, may that be our spiritual heritage, our family tree. Ones who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, ones who call upon the name of the Lord, may growing spiritually, may that be our priority. You know, I pray as, as Christians, may forgiveness be something that marks us. As Jesus said, not seven times, 77 times. If you'll bow with me, I'd like to close this word in prayer. Oh God, I, I praise you for your mercy in my life. Lord, I know the, the number there is not big enough for the debt you paid for me. I thank you, Lord, how you've, you've drawn us together, Lord, this evening. How by your grace you brought us through the week, brought us together. Open up your word, I pray, by your spirit, you'd seal it in our hearts. And by your spirit, that which is from you, may we be able to recall, take with us. That which is from me, may it fall to the ground. Oh, Lord, I pray those who do not know you, may they continue to have ears to hear as you call them to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. For those of us who know you, Lord, help us to call on your name, to teach our children, our, our grandkids, our friends, continue to make your name known, Lord. See more people added to be sons and daughters of God. Oh, I pray you would do this uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.